Ladies and gentlemen, after more than five decades of research, the field of AI is poised to transform the way we live, work, socialize, and even how we regard our place in the universe. There are many controversial subjects with regard to AI, and logically, there's a large and vibrant community of scholars engaged in vigorous debate on many of these questions. Recent advances in robotics, perception, and machine learning, supported by accelerating improvements in computer technology, have enabled a new generation of systems that rival or even exceed human capabilities in limited domains or on specific tasks. We'll come back to that. These systems are far more autonomous than most people realize. They can learn from their own experience and take actions never contemplated by their designers, which is scary sometimes. Whether we regard these machines as conscious or unwitting, revere them as a new form of life, or dismiss them as mere clever appliances is beside the point. They are likely to play an increasingly critical and intimate role in many aspects of our lives, all of your lives. The emergence of systems capable of independent thought and action raises serious questions about just whose interests they are permitted to serve and what limits our society should place on their creation and use. Deep ethical questions that have bedeviled philosophers for ages will now suddenly arrive on the steps of courthouses. Can a machine be held accountable for its actions? Should intelligent systems enjoy independent rights and responsibilities? Or are they simply property? Can your personal AI gadget hold your place in line or be compelled to testify against you? By the way, have you heard of the case in Arkansas? where the state prosecutor asked Amazon to release the data of Amazon Echo to uh, prove the guilt of a murderer. You should read that. It's, you know, some of you might have heard of that. If it turns out to be possible, uh, can your personal AI gadget, sorry, hold your place in line or be compelled to testify against you? If it turns out to be possible to upload your mind into a machine, is that still you? The answers may surprise you. John McCarthy, a founding father of the discipline, described the process back in 1955 as, quote, that of making a machine behave in ways that would be called intelligent if a human were so behaving, unquote. But this seemingly sensible approach to characterizing AI is deeply flawed, as we all know. Consider, for instance, the difficulty of defining, much less measuring, human intelligence. Are we talking about Sheldon Cooper, Al Capone, Donald Trump's intelligence? Well, I leave it up to you. Our cultural predilection for reducing things to numeric measurements that facilitate direct comparison often creates a false patina of objectivity and precision and attempts to quantify something as objective, as abstract as intelligence is clearly in this category. Today, machines are able to perform lots of tasks that people can do at all. And many such performances certainly feel like displays of intelligence. The behavior exhibited by systems like these, which will become ever more common in the future, doesn't lend itself to comparison with human capabilities. Nonetheless, we are likely to regard such systems as artificially intelligent. The question is at the crux of whether AI 
as such is a distinct discipline or simply the Lady Gaga of computer science? Well, ladies and gentlemen, there's no better person around to answer all these questions than tonight's guest speaker, Chris Bose, who, by the way, happened to be a successful rock musician when his AI tools were not really a big selling thing in the community, so much for Lady Gaga, right? Um, Chris, ha Chris has a mission, which is empowering human potential, freeing up time for creativity and innovative thinking through artificial intelligence. Chris founded Arago in Frankfurt in 1995, pushing existing boundaries in AI technology to build a general AI. In October 2014, KKR invested $55 million, $55 million in Arago for a minority stake. As a strategic corporate and political advisor, as well as an angel investor, Chris's multifaceted engagement for AI makes him a respected public speaker and thought leader on issues of global importance, such as the man-machine relationship, the way societies deal with information, and the future of labor. His academic credentials are also impressive. Chris studied computer engineering at the Technische Universität in Darmstadt and at ETH in Zurich. It's also my pleasure to introduce to you Chandran Sankaran, who will be heading and facilitating the discussion after Chris's presentation. Chandran is the founder, I now have to say ex-CEO of Zyme Solutions, uh, which he sold just very recently and he is bored to death and unemployed. So if you have an idea, just let him know. <laughs> Chandran focuses on ensuring the sustained delivery of client value, business growth and profitability, and growth of company core skills and capabilities. Prior to Zyme, he was chairman and CEO of Closed Loop Solutions, an enterprise software company that he founded in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1999. Closed Loop was acquired by Lawson Software in October 2003. Prior to Closed Loop, Chandran also held senior engineering and management positions with i2, the market leader in supply chain management software, and Hewlett Packard. Chandran studied computer science at Yale University and electrical engineering at IIT in Madras. So, talked enough, Chris. It's a great pleasure to have you here in Cambridge tonight. And we're looking forward to your fascinating insights into artificial intelligence at work. Chris, the stage is yours. Thank you very much, Jens. Thank you for showing up at this hour in the evening just to listen to me. Um, Jens has actually said everything, except for all the nice things he said about me. Most of them are probably not true. Um, I am a totally original nerd. I made my money by designing algorithms and selling them um, which basically meant I got to sit in a basement thinking about touring machines, watching screens, and not meeting many people. And um, I have started this trip towards AI quite a long time ago because I felt it was one of those topics that never gets done. Like, I had books, and the books said, in 25 years, artificial intelligence will do, insert your favorite whatever here. Um, and this is completely independent of the publishing date of the book. So I figured like someone has to start this 25 year period at least. And, and I found out there are actually a few out there who, are, who have done that and are doing this. You'll find that there is an AI community of old people like me. Um, and um, they had, they're very cynical about artificial intelligence. And I'm gonna show you a little bit about this now. 
I want to take you on a little journey to, take, to talk to you about AI. And since this is a business school, I'm going to start out with AI and economy, or basically what is happening in the economy and why AI might make sense of that. Um, what the AI market looks like, um, I can talk about our artificial intelligence a little bit, if that's of, of any interest. And then I would like to talk to you also about what kind of interesting, fun, sad, stressful, uh, and exciting experience I made as an entrepreneur. Because if you do that stuff for 25 years, you self-finance it, then you work together with barbarians at the gate, um, and, and you get to have all this fun at, at various uh, conferences, um, I think there is quite a bit to share. I'll try and hurry because um, I figure out we only have 50 minutes for, and it's 60 slides. So this is a business school, right? So we have to talk about business people and the difference between business and technology. I think this is rather important because currently technology is seemingly eating the world and nobody really understands why. So I want to give you my personal take on the difference between business guys and tech guys. Business people typically have goals, which is a good thing, right? Tech people have problems. That does not mean we're all depressed. It typically means that we take two steps back and try to solve whatever the goal could be like a Rubik's Cube. It is a very, very different way of thinking than that. And it shows you what a lot of people in these IT communities and communities around high-tech companies are planning and the way they approach problems. Once they solve problems or achieve their goals, business guys execute plans. And they all know that the plans don't survive the contact with battle, so their plans are super flexible. But they're executing a plan. Techies write code or they write programs. Programs have the huge advantage that they are executable millions of times, not just once. And with AI, they have just become a lot more flexible so they can adjust better to the contact with reality. And this is why the combination of giving so much power or expectation to high-tech people and the emergence of more artificial intelligence technology is kind of accelerating the development that we have been seeing already. What do I mean by the development that we have seen already? Well, currently, we have gone through this kind of, of um, industrial revolution that no one really noticed or doesn't care anymore, because we have an old and a new economy, right? We have the old economy that we all know of, the people that produce ships and cars and whatever, and we have, uh, or banks and insurances, <clears throat> pick your favorite, and we have the people that came out of the valley or, uh, or out of Shenzhen in China and, and one even in Russia that kind of are pushing high technology forward. And there is a huge difference between those guys. The huge difference is that in a typical high-tech company, which you'll see here, is that most of the revenue, or the revenue, let's simplify it, is made with 20% of what this company is having as cost. Then some financial analysts who completely understand what these companies are doing, not, um, have posted that they should be making roughly 27% of um, profit, which they gladly do, because 20 plus 27 is 47, and then leaves 53% of cash left over. 
The funny thing is, these companies achieve all their expectations that way, at least from a point of their direct shareholders and their investors, meaning that with the 53% cash that is left, they can basically do what they want, like throw it into the ocean, watch people jump after it. Normally, the guys are not that cynical. They actually believe that the world has problems that need fixing. And this is why they start fixing problems. And the oldest problems are in the oldest industries, like healthcare, like transportation, like communication, like and so on and so forth. You can go on with this. Um, and they have the possibility to try stuff and fail. And try it again and fail. And maybe try it again and then succeed. As on the other side, our normal companies who are governed by um, whatever you have, are learning in business school, they have cost, profit margin, and their wiggle room, the cash they have available to do something new is very limited. Even a company with a large innovation budget like Toyota, which is 8%, I believe, at the moment, is the largest in the world, um, except for in the high-tech companies, it's fairly small. And then they can't make big decisions, because imagine this. Imagine Mr. Ma from Alibaba, on this side, steps in front of the press and says, ladies and gentlemen, I have to inform you that the cancer drug that we've been working on for 12 months and we invested a billion dollars into does not work. We have stopped the program this morning. We will evaluate the data and then we'll look at it again. What happens? Nothing. That's the worst case. Nothing happens. In a good case, someone says, thank you for trying, because it's kind of important to find a new cancer drug. Or in a financial good case, someone says, like, fantastic, you've, in this 12 months, you've created 500 patents, and I'm sure you can use them for something else. That's what happens. If the same thing happens to the CEO of Pfizer, like a very powerful pharmaceutical company. He steps in front of the press and says, ladies and gentlemen, I have to inform you that the cancer drug we've been working on, we had in our pipeline, we spent a billion dollars on for the last 12 months. It doesn't work. We have to stop it. What happens? There is a vacancy on the CEO spot in that company, um, and the stock price goes down by 30% if that is enough. So you see there's a little problem there. And in Europe, I know that a lot of times we blame high-tech companies for being evil or blah, blah, blah. They're not. They are just better at doing things, and they are out to fix problems that we have. Coming from Germany, a lot of people tell me, but why do the cars need fixing? All the German cars are great, right? Why does Google need to build a car? Come on, a car is such a waste of money. You buy it, and then 98% of its lifetime, you don't use it and every second of it lifetime is using value. If that doesn't need fixing, I want the business school book you're reading. So the second thing that happens, um, goes maybe to the speaker we have, you have uh, in your next Enterprise Tuesday, is the invention of digital assistance, which is great. In the new economy, you have digital assistant. A Consumer talks to a digital assistant, tells them whatever they want, and the digital assistant picks according to the needs of the consumer and so on, picks out what the consumer should get from the people who produce goods and services. In the old style of economy, what we typically learn in business school, what you have here, is 
there are producers of goods and services and they have multiple channels and on these multiple channels they can compete for the customer. Sounds great. In this new model, there's only eight customers because only eight companies, at least at the moment, have the power to introduce a digital assistant in any kind of good quality. So again, especially in Europe, we stand up and say, like, this is horrible, the consumers and blah, they're all going to die. No, um, but we complain, right? So no, the point, this is actually fantastic for consumers. Why is it fantastic for consumers? Because in this old model, you have to make money on a transaction. You have to make money on a transaction, which means that if you're short on money, you're very likely to rip off consumers. In this model, you have to make money with a consumer lifetime, meaning that you're going to, and the only bad thing that can happen to you is that the consumer goes off to one of the other seven digital assistants that are around. You don't want that to happen. So you're happy to satisfy your consumer and maybe make a loss or be break even sometimes. The consumer gets better service in the new model. So it's not the new companies that are evil, it's just that we're too much asleep to change. And maybe we can change because our system doesn't work that way. What is necessary if you want to survive in this world? Well, it's quite simple. It's necessary to do innovation. Because if you have something new that no one else has, um, obviously people are going to buy it from you. You should have a strong brand. Why? Because if people ask for you, wherever they buy, fantastic, they ask for you directly and they're going to buy you. And here's something that is actually interesting. If companies lose the customer touch point at the point of sale, because that goes to a digital assistant, we will have a big revival of service because service is the only way to get back in touch with the consumer that you might want to talk to in the end for various reasons. It also might be a problem of solving labor problems because for service, <coughs> the only high-end education you need is be a nice guy. That is if you want to survive. If you actually want to compete, if you want to thrive in this environment, you will have to find your own exponential model or a marketplace model, and that is hard to do. It's not just hard to do because it's a risky business and because it, it defeats your mindset and the human mind is set up for linear thinking and blah, blah, blah. It is hard to do because as an old company, you can't really stop whatever you're doing. Let me stick with the bad examples on the German industry. Like imagine BMW goes in, into their general shareholder meeting and they say like, we're going to do a mileage-based car model from tomorrow on. Everybody's going to clap. It's a fantastic innovation and blah, blah, blah. Um, and next thing that's going to happen is they're like, we're going to produce 70% less cars. Because in a share economy, we just don't need all these cars. That would create a huge problem. Like we in Germany thought doomsday had arrived when in 2009 we produced 10%, no, 9% less cars. Imagine what happens if 70%. So it's very hard to change those models. You basically have to create the new model and then retire the old one, which a normal company normally can't do. And this is, ladies and gentlemen, where I think AI plays into the whole thing. Because with today's technology, any process can be run by an AI. 
any process can be run by an AI, and I'm talking not about the um, interaction that we're having and all this kind of stuff, I'm going to get to that later, I'm talking about the mechanics of business, mainly the overhead functions, the things that need to happen in the background to make stuff work, the production. And why am I saying this? See, the problem that we have with AI is that we simply don't have enough data and enough time to explain the entire world to an AI. So we explain little bits of the world, like a chess game or a Go game or a civilization game or a specific process or whatever to an AI. See, and this is what we have done in our economy. By tailorizing and by introducing good processes, what we have done is we have made the entire industry machine accessible. We have made the algorithms a bit smarter, but mainly what we have done is we have made economy machine accessible. So maybe we should use that. And what I very strongly believe is that normally when we had access to a new technology that creates like 80-90% efficiency, plus it was only the companies doing it, we would have a massive disruption like the Industrial Revolution, which before it came back to a stable system had two economic, global economic crisis and two world wars, which was not very pleasant. Because of the competition that the old companies are facing, they, when they adapt AI, are basically forced to keep the workforce because they have to go look out for their new business models. So instead of complaining too much about the Silicon Valley crowd, we should say thank you just a bit because they might prevent kind of a very unstable transition from system A to system B. Let's have a look at the AI market and start out with something very important. So I've been doing this for 22 years. 19 years or 18 years of which I was sitting in my basement having a lot of fun. Then all of a sudden AI started becoming hip. And for two years now, every little piece of math that appears in the world is called artificial intelligence and it's utter crap. So let me tell you three things that AI is not. Number one, computers do not understand anything. So whenever you hear computer blah, 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 understand something, you know you're listening to the marketing record. Language is way too complex to decompose into meaning. Um, and the, the problem that you have here is the idea that computers could understand something kind of gives you the completely wrong impression. What computers can do very well is you give them a very large data streams and they will match an understanding structure that you have created before against this data stream and find things that are similar to what you explained are completely opposite, are the same, and so on. It does that, but the understanding structure comes from the outside. The computer just does the data processing. Number two is, and I find this absolutely dreadful, right? A lot of people say XYZ technology is modeled after the human brain. So let me make the comparison properly. If you can say that about today's AI, you would say the human body, hmm, no, the amoeba is modeled after the human body just because it has a cell, a single one. Let's do some math, right? So a large neural network has one 1.2 million nodes. You need a nuclear power plant to run it. An average brain of an adult person has 86 billion neurons. I don't get this as you can see, but a lot of people get it. Runs on 20 watts. 
right? Very energy efficient. And also we do have a chemical system in our brains, which is completely analog, which creates tons and tons of new possibilities, infinitely many in almost infinitely many dimensions, kind of multiplying the 86 billion uh, <clears throat> neurons that are in there. And then for about five years now, researchers are fairly adamant about the fact that there's a quantum mechanical system inside the brain, which also induce, introduces probabilities. So comparing these two things, like a neural network which simulates a very small, tiny part of the electrical system of the brain, and then saying it's modeled after the brain, that's really bullshitting you guys big time. Number three is, and this is the problem that AI has always faced, whatever algorithm currently gets you good results is called artificial intelligence, um, at least in the newspapers. This is hilarious. In the AI community, we typically say, as long as it doesn't work, it's called artificial intelligence. As soon as it starts working, it gets a real name, like image recognition, right? Stuff like that, because that used to be AI. So please do not think that there is a single technique that is artificial intelligence. There are many algorithms and algorithm families that go into the artificial intelligence realm in computer science. And you will never be able to create anything general with just one single algorithm. And deep learning happens to be one of them, or machine learning happens to be one of those families. This is very important because it will save you from a lot of misperception if you, if, if you don't have a run under these premises. So what is AI then? What is inside it? Well, let's categorize it. On the one end, we have narrow AI. Narrow AI typically means someone downloads an algorithm from the internet, and nothing bad about this because a lot of stuff is built that way. Someone downloads a well-known algorithm that has been proven to work, and they spend a lot of time finding, curating tr data, and training the system to do something very specific. You might say this is boring. Guys, this is the programmer's answer to McKinsey. Like what, does, what do these AIs do, the narrow AIs? They take a single topic and optimize the hell out of it. And compared to other optimization algorithms, they can live with a lot of unknowns and free variables. This is just what you do when you do efficiency runs in a company. You take a look at a particular problem, you say, let's make that part more efficient because um, I need the money or I, I need to change the plant structure or whatever, right? No one should be afraid of this uh, and no one should say like, I can't do this, it's impossible. This is easy to do, but you have to think this is a point solution for a point problem. On the other end of the spectrum, we have what the newspapers typically write about. This is the robot that says, I love you and actually knows what it's saying and means it. I can promise you today that thing does not exist. The people in the world who are working on general artificial intelligence have no clue how to start building one of those. It's a very interesting philosophical topic. It's a great discussion, preferably with a lot of beer, um, but that's all it is. It's not there. I'm not saying it's never gonna happen, but currently, AI has the potential or is inevitable and likely to turn our economic model upside down. Maybe we should deal with that first before we talk about science fiction. By the way, there are fantastic science fiction books about there. Like, you don't need it in a newspaper.
In between those, there is something that we call general AI, and unfortunately that's a misleading term because a lot of people associate general uh, artificial intelligence with a self-conscious machine or think nothing of the like works. So general AI is when you are able to apply the same technology, exactly the same technology, to probably with the same data set to various problems. Something like we do. We use exactly the same engine to be a sysadmin, to play civilization, to feed chicken, fly planes, and a lot of other much less interesting stuff. Flying planes is my favorite. Um, what do we need to build these kind of AIs? Well, there's just four things, right? We need algorithms, we need data, we need compute power, and we need people. That's why you're here, right? We need more smart people. So let's talk about this at time. The only thing I'm not going to talk about in detail is compute power, because you can simply buy that at Amazon. You don't need a um, massive like data center anymore to get started. When you're growing enough, you might want to build your own data center, but for now, you can just get that from the cloud. Fine. What about algorithms? I see currently there is four main algorithm families. There are many more, but four main ones. One is machine learning. Two is the natural language processing, which I don't really consider AI, but it's always in the space. Three is machine reasoning, and then on the side of this, because you can replicate it, but at immense compute cost, is all these genetic algorithms that exist. So here's special, we are at a university, right? So we need some real charts. Um, <clears throat> what happens in machine learning? In machine learning, basically what happens is you have unstructured data going into a processor, and that processor is supposed to find a pattern in this data and then associate a positive action with that data. If it does not associate a positive action, you delete the program that has do done it. So let's compare this to people. You have an unstructured data stream, which is your eye. Your processor recognizes a pattern, you call that a tiger, and you associate a positive action, you run if you didn't associate that positive action, you're eaten, you're gone out of the system. You will, that stupid idea of not having that association will disappear. Simple evolution trial and error works pretty well. What we're building here is basically reinforcing behavior patterns. First, something is a habit, then a skill, then a talent, and at some point it becomes completely ingrained and you can't even explain it anymore. I mean, breathing is very useful, but can you explain to me how breathing works? Like, which muscles do you have to use? You can't. <clears throat> this, by the way, is also a big misperception that you find in the enterprise world. In the enterprise world, you often, people think of AIs like they think about humans. They think what is easy for a human should be easy for an AI. And it's exactly the other way around. The explanation lies right here, right? It's all about iterations. So humans have spent a lot of iterations learning to walk. We have only millions of years because the crocodile could also walk. We have spent only 50 years in trying to make robots walk. We use a lot of cheating to do that and they still look completely drunk. It's all about iterations. The, the culmination of iteration evolution was language. The idea that a computer can use language properly is just not there yet. Not yet, because it's so highly compressing. Imagine the word cat, three bytes. Close your eyes. You, you, with that word cat, you will, be imagine, you will be able to imagine all cats, like fluffy ones, tigers, whatever cats you're enjoying comic ones, doesn't matter, all compressed 
behind these three bytes. This is why the compression rate of language is still too high to decode. But what we have already been able to do is conceptualize, like the higher animals are able to conceptualize. Let's say you have learned from a herring that you can eat it. You can conceptualize the herring towards fish because there are many things that are similar to herrings. Um, and you can then say we are associating eating with all these fish and then we're going to treat exceptions to the poisonous fish we find out, learn separately, that we shouldn't eat them. But we have now accelerated our learning curve greatly. What humans have done is something special. We have been able to name these concepts and thus we can communicate without ever doing any trial and error our experience to someone else. We don't have to do the trial and error anymore. We have basically, with language, outpaced evolution. So we are still breeding at the speed of large complex organisms, but we're developing at the speed of algae because we can talk to each other. Not about the gossip stuff, but knowledge. Right? So um, that is a very important system, and we haven't achieved that with computers yet. But there will be the point where it will be achievable. At the other end of the spectrum, when we take these symbols in, and we take these symbols in, and we are able to set ourselves goals and maybe constraints, we again can put them back into a processor, and we can ask the processor to tell me how I achieve these goals. And then something happens that differentiated Homo sapiens from other Homo species is we were able to simulate in our brains. We were able to like make a plan. Does that remind you of anything like business people? Make a plan and weigh options against each other and then choose an option according to the situation. If you do this internally inside your head, you call this reasoning. When you do it with someone else, you call it argument. And when you do it loudly, you call it fight. Right, so in machines are doing it all internally, they reason. So now we have machine learning, natural language processing, and machine reasoning. If you want to build a general AI, you will at least need learning and reasoning. Both of those have problems. Like learning has the problem that it, if you make the network too large, it learns by heart. If you make it too small, then you get un unwanted behavior patterns. Reasoning has the problem that you need to be able to explain the entire world to it. Everything has to be logical and so on. But by combining those systems, you're able to fill the gaps with each of those. Both ways of combining them is legal. Do it like nature, build learning first and then reasoning around it. Or the one that I prefer is build reasoning at the core because we don't want unlogical machines and fill the problems that you have with reasoning with machine learning. That's all we're going to do in computer science today. Just a thought about how um, <clears throat> AI is what's inside of those when you talk about it. Now let's talk about data. Um, data is rather important. And there is this Hotel California effect in the big data platforms, right? Where you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave happens. You can start being tracked on the internet and the tracking never stops. People will be watching you. For an old industry, that is kind of bad. I'm not saying this is bad for the consumers because we get, we pay services with our data. But for companies, this is kind of bad because when you watch whatever they know and they're doing, you're able to learn it without them knowing. This is why I believe that in the corporate world, 
or in basic economics, these guys need to find an independent data pool that can actually allow them to exchange data, trade knowledge, trade data. There's one of those big misperceptions that um, corporates have is they call data the oil of the 21st century. That's bull because they don't know what data is good for. Data is good for describing the world. The problem with most companies is they don't have broad data, they have deep data. So BMW knows everything about what kind of screws you need to build next to build better cars. They have absolutely no clue what kind of cars to build next because people want to buy them. That data you get from Starbucks. <clears throat> so when we build data pools, it's all about describing the world. You can do this like most of the internet platforms do it by sitting on the shoulder of the consumer and just watching their lives. Because then you get a broad data set and you get to describe the world. Or you can do it by combining the data from a lot of industries, then you're going through the hassle of explaining to these people why they need to share their oil, um, but you get much deeper data. Both works, and by the way, data protection is not bad. It, is, it will cost you a little more in implementing at first, but it's worth to protect privacy in the end. And personally, I'm happy to give my privacy to Google or Amazon because I get something back, right? It doesn't recommend to me crap I don't want and it writes emails for me and so on. I'm much more worried about governments. Is it possible to compete with the, with the big boys? I'm asked this question all the time. Like, it's like, okay, Chris, you are a, well, you have a well-funded AI company and you can get more funding and blah, but how can you match the billions that Google is rolling into this? We said, let's look at the results. Right? And the results, if we look at what was achieved in, inside DeepMind, for example, the energy efficiency in um, the data centers, we can run, no problem, system administration. They play Go, which is a game that has 10 to the power of 760 possibilities. We play Civilization, game that is 10 to the power of 15,000 possibilities. This is a fight, like, it's a fun fight. It's an intellectual fight. It's about who can do the next step. And it totally is possible. Why is it possible? Because it's so hard to find the talent. Like these AI teams are fought over, thought after, cuddled, cajoled, whatever, to start somewhere. And they kind of have the same size all over the place. So let me very quickly, because I've, I actually want to tell you more about the journey that I had as an entrepreneur, tell you about what we do at Arago. We have a technology, as I said, general AI, apply it to multi, with exactly the same engine, exactly the same data pool to multiple problems. At the core of this is a data-based operating system, something that can crunch data on a graph model at, at a very high speed. Why that? Quite simple, because a graph is the only representation that's legal for a um, dynamic system. The world is a very dynamic system. A lot of people in business and enterprise try to ignore that. They simplify complexity and they make it like look great on a PowerPoint chart. What they actually do is they ignore part of the world and then they're surprised when strange stuff happens. You have to accept complexity, and a graph is a way to model that complexity and be able to add more detail as you go along. And this is why you see a lot of stuff operating on these semantic graphs. The goal of having a lot of data is always to get kind of a semantic structure because you want to explain the world to the machine. 
because you don't have people that explain the world to the machine or people are very inconsistent, you need a lot of data to do that to use the law of large numbers. Second part of what we're doing is knowledge transfer. Like how do we transfer knowledge into the machine? We can do this by observing or we can do this by asking people. If we're asking people, that's way more energy efficient, but it kind of also is very difficult. Like, do we go through this in a chatbot? Do we have, have them write code? How do we have them codify it? And so on and so forth. It actually works when you go through a very simplified process like anybody does. You give some, you don't ask someone, please explain to me everything you know. You say, after they've done something, you say like, can you explain how you did this? Exactly this, not the optimal version of this, but what you have just done. Like any apprentice used to learn a long time ago, that works really well and gets you exponential growth in possible permutations. And when you're able to link them up, this is perfect. Our third component is this engine that actually in a lo very loosely tied pool of experience and knowledge is able to find a path that leads to a solution using reasoning and learning algorithms. <clears throat> and because we're data crazy people, we follow the entire customer journey in there. We're measuring everything, right? We don't believe us, we don't believe our clients. Why not? Because a lot of people have a lot of interpretations of what they're saying. For example, for a long time, our implementation projects took a long time at customers. Like three months project, six month project, and we wanted it done in two weeks. So what did we do? We gave them a project tool that did something that they wanted. They all said they have great project management systems, but no one does surveys for them on are they happy with the project team. So we gave them a tool that, that gave them the ability to create these services and they entered all their milestones and we saw all the projects. We were able to find the difficulties in these projects very quickly. I'm showing the slides because whoever here wants to do entrepreneurship, having data about your customer journey no matter if it's your core, like for us, this lollipop part here, where the AI part happens, um, or that part where customers get used to what you're doing, that's the same importance. Because you need to understand every step of the way. So here's my typical plan for companies um, to introduce AI into their environment. The first thing I ask them is, do you really want this? I mean, do you want the change or do you just want the marketing? If you just want the marketing, take out your phone, do five pictures, you've used 20 AI algorithms, you're done. You can write, we're doing AI. But if you really want it, you should introduce it somewhere where it's not obvious, like in a Trojan horse, because you need to be able to create kind of a data map of your company so that the next thing you do is a fast project. Because if people don't have success in what they see, if it takes two and a half years, like a lot of these commercial guys <clears throat> have, have done now, if it takes two and a half years, that's way too long. But if you already have built up kind of a semantic understanding of a company, you can roll it out very quickly, like in a week or two. Remember, everything that is a process can be run by an AI. And it will be. And the efficiency of this is huge. And I think it's also very important because we no longer will force people to work like machines. We can have people work in what they like, working with other people because service is required. And we can have them work in what people also like, creativity, because we need all these new things. We need all these branded things. We need all these risk takers out there that are actually willing to try something new.
There's two ways to learn, by observing or by asking someone who already knows. Asking someone who already knows has a 95% energy advantage. So if you ever hear one of those old companies again that says like, oh, we can't do this because we're so stuck with what we are currently, well, that's the advantage they have. If they not use it, they really deserve to die. Fulfilling the promise of artificial intelligence means to make experience executable. Experience is created by humans. It might be evolved or optimized by machines, but the true experience is something that we create. Making our knowledge executable, and by observing us we do the same thing, is what AI does for us. So after that brief intro into AI, let me spend 10 minutes on entrepreneurship. I believe in technology, there are four types of things that can happen. So number one is you have an innovation. Something new comes along. That does not mean it's successful just because it's new. It might have a small crowd attached to it, but it doesn't really. If it has to evolve over time, which typically means it needs to iterate because it needs to get better. It needs to evolve. It needs to kind of hurt a bit when it touches customers. And I can tell you, I went through so many cycles with a lot of the stuff that we do. And I'm an algorithm person. Like I was happy when the algorithms were provable. The things that need iteration is the contact with the user. Like for example, for me, automation is great when you don't see anything. Most people get scared when they don't see anything, but stuff moves. Right? So you have to visualize it to people. But how do you visualize? And so on and so forth. These iterations are really important. The major part that happens if you can actually introduce disruption. Disruption means changing business models completely. I'm going to get into that because AI definitely is a disruptive model. And at the end of these life cycles, you always have the common usage, like a utility, something that we all have and know. So here is basically the types of people and entrepreneurs you need to do each of those. Like the crazy ones that can imagine something, that's the ones that do animation. Then you have ambitious crazy ones, that's the ones that are driving disruption. You have the business guys that are driving iteration and making stuff better. And you have the engineers that fuel the whole system. And if you dissolve that combination between engineers and business people, you're getting to pure iteration and pure optimization which leads to utility, which leads to, in the end, incumbents, because these will be, again, replaced by disruption. So the problem with this is disruption often fails. Like, if you try for disruption, it fails. Or it is turned off by the business guys because whatever. Imagine what would have happened to Facebook if they had put on ads at a million users. Would have ever had two billion users? Probably not. Their disruption worked but it's highly likely that disruption fails. On the other hand, the most money in all this stuff goes into copycats, into people who do something that's already there. Why? Because it's so easy to understand. And because you can argue in front of any investment committee that's a proven business model. And because for an investor, 
it kind of reduces the pain to have missed the guy who disrupted the market. That's very important, right? You say, like, but I'm going to do it with him. One very important message, and I come from an engineering background, and it is totally clear that engineers and business minds need to team up because otherwise there's no good iteration. It's just not possible. Investing into iteration, into investing into getting better needs very clean execution and good management. If that does not happen, I can tell you from my own painful experience, I have gone through a couple of COOs, I have um, had to pick it up all again by myself. If you don't accept that fact that techies and biz people need to work together, you're very you're you're not likely to fail. You will fail. I want to tell you some strange things that happened to me in conversations with investors. Like my absolute favorite one is this: people say, "Like, fantastic! You're talking about disruptive model. Can you tell me exactly when's going to happen what?" Like this is so hilarious. If I could do that, I would probably live in Hogwarts Castle. Right? It is, but that is a question that comes. Even more funny is this one. Someone goes ahead and says, like, this is very interesting. It's totally innovative. Where's your cookie cutter? Have you like done this 10 times or 20 or 50? Like, is it totally repeatable? It's like, uh, no, this is new. Go, but then we can't give you any money. This is precisely the reason because I, ha I didn't want these conversations that I had as an angel investor and so on to happen at Arago is why we spend such a long time self-financed because these conversations are completely useless. Um, here is one that is especially funny in Europe is when you actually make money, people give you a worse valuation. Like there, there is a very weird kind of logic that makes sense to this. It's because they say like, well, you're not able to make a billion out of this, so you're probably not a good company or you're not executing well, so we'll give you what. When you, when you don't make money, people say like, well, you're creating fantastic potential and if you, that would be executed, right, then there would be blah, blah, blah. It is very strange. I'm, I'm of an engineering mindset. So if I look at our revenue streams and, and I start something new, I want to know, does the market accept it? The market only accepts it when they pay money for it. So you need a test. But that's a very tough conversation with the, with the investment crowd to have. And you're saying like, I have revenue because I tested it and it fucking works. And here's the one that happened in one of the companies that I'm invested in is as soon as a VC came in, they basically wanted to fire all the R&D people. Like, how can you say you want a tech valuation and then not have research and development? That's totally ridiculous. If you see ever that, if that ever happens somewhere close to you, run. Like, it's the only, only thing to do. It's totally weird. But there are also very strange things that entrepreneurs do. So I spend about 20% of my time speaking to people because I also need to run a company and engineering team. A lot of entrepreneurs you see constantly networking. They go to the party, they, they, like all the time. They sit in the coffee shop and they talk and they think that's the work. That's not the work, that's the fun bit. The work happens when you actually execute. It's very important to know because sometimes you hire 
former entrepreneurs or people who would prefer to be entrepreneurs and all they want to do is network and they think it's super important because they all meet these important people. Guys, I can tell you, I have a stack of business cards to the ceiling of people that are high, mile high in somewhere. I was in Davos, I spoke to XYZ billionaires. That doesn't help you at all if you don't execute. Another thing that really is horrible is when you have stuff that doesn't work yet and explain to everybody that it works because that gets you in a vicious, vicious cycle. Or the same thing when you pretend that it works by throwing people at it. Large valuations are created because something is multipliable, scalable, without added cost. If you don't get that, you can't be an entrepreneur. And the really bad thing that happens sometimes is that there are people who are such great marketers that they sell you an empty room and they build this dreamy castle in there. This is why it is really important to have a deep conversation with your own team about the stuff that goes out. If you're not in love with the detail, you probably have problems. And here is something that unfortunately very often happens in the valley. In the valley you have some people that are absolutely fantastic, but you also have a big cycle of people and I see this also happening in, for example, FinTech now. They built unsustainable businesses, leaky pipes, um, just because they think it's a topic, they have a great PowerPoint deck, and they just want it to be bought very quickly. But that leads to problems down the way, because when you sell, you typically have an earnout model and that kind of stuff. And if you don't want these kind of models, you will have to survive for quite a long time and grow it to a very good size. That is not an idea. If you really just want to be rich, there are other options. So here are the messages that I keep saying to investors when I meet them straight away. We are a disruptive business. If you don't like that, don't invest in us. If you like it, it's high risk and you'll have to let it play out. It is very important to have this combination of business and engineering. If that's not acceptable, it won't work. On the entrepreneur side, and I think maybe important questions or messages to you guys, is if you are a tech person, like don't just go for iteration. You need to go for innovation because the business people are much better at iterating. But if you're a business person, you should find something that you believe in and iterate the shit out of it so you make it the best it can ever be. The problem with disruption, if you really want to change the world, if you, that's really what you want to do, it's a lonely job. You have to be prepared for the fact that it's going to take a long time and no one's going to believe you until it's really done. If you're happy with that, then you should start that bit. And if you just want to be rich, play the lottery. You hurt much fewer people that way. Thank you very much. So, Chris, um, let's start with your... I'm not running away from you. No, no, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to catch you even if you run. So, uh, uh, 
let's start with the entrepreneur journey stuff first, and then we'll go back and uh, jump into some AI, AI things. Okay, right. so uh, 25 years? 22 and a half. 22 yeah. and a half years, but who's counting? Uh, at what point did, you know, there's a certain amount of stupidity, right, that kind of it takes to stick with something when there's no real potential in the market year after year after year after year after year. And it's kind of a theoretical thing that, that largely the market kind of doesn't even understand what, what you're doing. And then at some point in the last two years, you've gone from being kind of the guy in the basement to being a fashion model, right? And kind of like, yeah, yeah, no, but, but everyone is talking about AI. At what point, at any point in that journey, did you just say, you know what, this is kind of too crazy. What I'm trying to do here is never going to have practical adoption in the, in the world. And, and, uh, or, or, was there, or were you just kind of powering through that period, not thinking that way? No, it's basically a constant question. So if I, if I have to split up the lifetime of Virago, yeah. we spent from 95 to 2008 to, as a research company. We really did research and we only made money by doing projects on the side to finance the research. Um, at that point, I was often asking myself, like, why should we not just make the money instead of reinvesting it all the time? And it's a fairly long period, right? It's, it's 13 years. Um, then when it started to work, I was totally impressed. I mean, I'm like, oh my God, it actually works. We can, this was 2008. Um, and, and then I had this, oh, where do we apply this? I said, General, where do we, and we tried it in the medical field. And, um, it worked amazingly. Like in three months, we were able to do what doctors were completely not able to do. And then came the big like punch in the face. It's like I found out it's completely illegal for a machine to do medical decisions. And that's when I was really very close to selling it. Like another algorithm pack, I sold one before, like sell it off and be done with it and try the island bit again. Yeah. Um, and then I said, like, no, because this has a huge potential if we apply it inside the old economy. And it had kind of this meaning to me. I said, I, and meaning in, in a altruistic way, because I believe, as, as I hope I explained, why this model could help us avoid disrupting everybody's lives. Um, but it also had a, a very attractive financial proposition because the more competition these large companies that are out there feel, the more they're willing to spend. And we can definitely see that happening in the market now. So that's what made me not sell it. Yeah, but I mean, I mean this is kind of like, you know, generally thematically true of entrepreneurs. I think they manically see their world uh, in, in a way that nobody else can. And so kind of the logic continues to fuel you, right? Year after year after year. Whereas most rational people would look at it and say, well, the promise of AI, you know, is not yet upon you. And so go do something else fruitful, but you didn't. And, and, you know, and hence you're here. But uh, so, sorry, you, did you want to comment? On I, I yeah. wanted to say yeah. one more thing. I yeah. mean, there, there are super tough moments in this. I have in like 2012 or so, when we were still were a very small self-finance companies, I had board members who were my friends then tell me, Chris, you're completely delusional. Yeah. Like, like you hear these things and it is super important, especially when these guys are your friends, you have to be able to look in the mirror and, and really ask that question is, are you completely wrong? And you have to honestly answer it. If you can't honestly answer it, you probably are. 
Well, but I think one of the keys, though, to making it work the way you did was the fact that you didn't take too much capital too early, and therefore you could write it out, and it was largely your life that you were sacrificing, not five investors who were looking for a return in three to four years exactly. and pushing you, right? So your financing model was compatible with this kind of long run, you know, patient, you know, going to see it through to the end kind of approach. This is, the topic was interesting enough, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but it's very true. Yeah. So uh, let's go back to AI. Uh, do you play poker? Uh, sometimes. Okay, so I, I, I'm, a, I'm a poker player, and one of the one of the kind of observations that I have is, when uh, in the world of poker, so let's say you explain to somebody the rules, someone who's never played poker before, but a human being, a real intelligence, right? Uh, and they sit at the table, and you explain the rules of poker, and you explain how the hands work. After a couple of rounds, they figure it out. Okay, they figure out how to play. And I think kind of, so humans have the ability not just to learn, but to learn how to learn, right? There's a meta ability to learn. And whereas today, AI with a general AI, I think you, the way you would describe it, it is to say, great, seat the machine at the table, feed it an initial set of kind of learning and experiences, get it started, get it bootstrapped, and then after that, it can play poker pretty well. I mean, I'm, if I, first, I wanna, I'm characterizing it that way. First, do you agree with that characterization or? Uh, it can play poker pretty well, but it could never beat a human, right? It can just follow the rules. Then you get into this method where you have to like deal with the nuances. Um, I can't explain that in poker too well. I can explain it with Civilization, which is a game we actually played. Yeah. By the way, I mean it, it took it takes an AI much longer to learn poker. It's also possible now, um, but the bluffing was very hard for it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Um, but if if I look at the game of Civilization, if you give it the rules, the AI can experiment and it will kind of not lose all the time. Um, but winning takes a lot of strategy, and you have to point it in the right directions for strategy. And so, so the question is, where on the learning curve? So, right. So, AI was largely in, 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 in laboratories and in academia, and now all of a sudden, in the last three to five years, it's found its way to practical application. So if I look out 10 years or 15 years, one of the things that, I mean, I guess I feel is that iteration cycles were very long for us, but they're very fast for a machine, right? Kind of the world that we're in. So it's conceivable that a machine could do 10 million iterations over the next five years of learning steps, which might have taken us 800 years, right? So there's kind of a compression of timing from a learning perspective. And so five years out or 10 years out are kind of, where's that, where's that curve as you look forward now at the pace of, uh, would a machine be able to sit at a table and with minimal instruction, other than generally how games of cards are played and the rules of poker and how you win, learn how to learn how to play poker. I don't think we're there yet. There, we're yeah. still, the, the problem of this genetic evolution of the program is still very compute heavy. And it's, it's very, you could do that, but only with a supercomputer, even in, in five years, even if Moza holds. Um, but eventually you're going to be able to do it. So I don't what know is eventually though? Is it 50 or is it 20? I mean, hey, look, no, you, you've shorter. been living, I, I would say it's shorter, yeah. right? But it's, it's the question, can it invent something new? Like would a machine invent bluffing? No, you actually have to explain that to the machine. And the machine cannot in, ex, see that without seeing like the other player's cards or by um, you explaining it to the machine. There's two, these two ways. It will never invent that itself. Yeah, but, but except the machine to machine playing, they could go through a million games in 30 minutes, whereas in a human game, 
we might take 30 minutes for a single game. That's why the reason, for example, a machine can uh, do nonlinear equations and uh, Euclidean, non-Euclidean geometry yeah. um, in like two minutes, and it took us 70 years to like roll it out properly. Yeah, exactly. Well, and so back to, back to poker for a second. It used to be that the way you learned how to play poker was meeting people every Sunday, you know, at the, at the basement of your house, and you learned how to play, you know, and you learned to play poker, whereas when you go online, you can play 50 hands in, in two hours, right? So kind of the learning curve is quite different, I think, for in a machine environment. Absolutely, yeah. very different. Very different. So, uh, Get ready with your questions. Let me ask you another question in the meantime. So, where are the low-hanging fruit markets for AI uh, in the next three to four years, given where AI is today, and given kind of uh, given uh, how machine-ready the processes are, right, in in organizations? So, um, I have made this big list of verticals, right, yeah. and it, it basically starts out with, uh, and and the questions in the list asked is what kind of an impact could we have if we could remote control that business and how accessible is the business to a uh, machine already so does it have apis and stuff like this so you come out at the top you have uh, the tel the it industry of course the telco industry the finance industry right anything that deals with virtual goods uh, out there um, and at the bottom of the whole list you have uh, the swiss watchmaker and the irish pub yeah highly specialized highly bespoke each time and guinness right and the experience yeah, it's yeah, very okay. important so uh, but but go back to telco so what is the What's an example of a process which today is still people heavy, or any industry that you want, that, that kind of perhaps is most surprises people when you say, hey, you know, AI is ready today to take that process and completely obsolete people from, from those jobs? Um, well, network management. Um, people still think that, that we need network management completely. In telcos, you've, you've said. Um, but it's not just network management. Because an AI iterates much faster and can react and act much faster, um, we also can do stuff that we could never do with our very long process chains, right? A process chain typically to, to get the si right sign-offs and to like send someone out to press some buttons or whatever normally can take a long time. So in a telco, when you network manage um, the, 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 for example, mobile cell towers with an AI, you can increase the efficiency, the throughput of the network dramatically, um, 5%, without 8%, sending a person out without, to without A, sending a person, and B, um, without opening up the street, which in, for example, Deutsche Telekom's uh, realm, every percent of network efficiency you create, for example, by just recalibrating the antennae towards where there are more cars, because you know that from Google Maps where there are more cars, creates, um, so each percent you do creates a billion in market cap for them. Like that's a huge effect that you could never create with people. Questions? Yeah, in the blue shirt, yeah. Uh, you were saying that you don't think that uh, the general AIs on the market today really are even close to resembling the human brain. Do you think that's to do with um, a complexity issue or do you think that structurally there's or conceptually there's something drastically different between the way a human intelligence works than a machine intelligence of sufficient complexity could work? Well, we don't know how human complexity, yeah, how human intelligence work yet. One of the big problems, and one one why I enjoy talking to um, uh, the, the whole neural science guys uh, so much. But um, currently, 
you have a very simplistic structure in neural networks. Even if we can blow their size up to 86 billion, we're still missing a lot of the interconnectivity. The interconnectivity of the brain is much, much higher than what we do in networks today. So even by, so if, if Moore's law holds, then uh, we can build a machine with a decent energy consumption with 86 billion neurons networked like the brain in 2029. But then you're still missing the analog system of the chemicals in the brain and you're missing the quantum mechanical system. So that's why, and that hasn't even been started to model yet. Absolutely, because they change the configuration of the neurons. Yeah, and so, but if I, if, if I were to s simplify the question a little bit and say, not quite a human brain, but perhaps kind of on the evolution towards a human brain. So kind of a human brain, but applied to limited domain functionality, right? Uh, well, it just works very differently than a human brain, but that's okay, right? It just, it does the job. Like it doesn't, why do we have to build a human brain? If right. we can, why all we right? want it to do is a job for us. And by the way, I'm not saying that we can never build a human brain. It's just not visible yet. Yeah. Question? And then you, the back. So my question is about implementation of AI in companies. It's happening. I know it's happening. I come from banking. I come from banking background where uh, every few years, lots of people lose because a new technology has been applied. It has been happening for many, many years. Um, but I think AI does take it to next level. However, what are those ingredients we need? Say, suppose if we were to do an AI bank, which doesn't really need or need very few human interactions, or you don't have to give an example of bank, it can be any industry. What I'm trying to understand is what are the additional, you know, skills or what are those additional things that you need to have a company or organization which is completed on some... So I think in a bank especially for for a lot of the part of the bank you don't need anything that is not in the bank already. You actually need much, much less of it and you need more compute power. Um, what you what is very hard to replace and what you will not be able to replace uh, right now i'm also saying not never but not in the near future is the customer facing people like the, the people who really do customer service i believe that is um, or investor service or whatever they are i believe that is still hard to do and in a bank with all these badly interfaced processes between front middle and back office um, Either you still have humans to do these interfaces, or you have to introduce a technology like blockchain to bridge the gaps. So the back there. Well, hi, I have uh, two quick ones. Uh, so do you think that phenomena like uh, deepfake will actually, uh, I don't know, disrupt the development of AI? That's the first one. And the second one is, do you think that it's quite uh, safe that the ministers of health, they don't, in, around Europe and I don't know, in the world, do you think it's quite safe that they don't go in public and admit that uh, machines actually they surpass uh, many stuff that the doctors do these days, so they effectively can discourage people in? An you know, I'm not sure I understood the question. So, so, uh, so let's try let's try that again. Okay. So, so the first one was about the deep fake, and if you think that this gonna disrupt the development of AI you know because some yeah. regulation might even be imposed. Okay. So let's take that. So no, I don't think that that will depose anything. 
why? I don't uh, know. We can have a discussion about this, but I, I, I don't think it will. Why should it? Uh, and the second one is like, uh, so since, as you said before in, in your presentation, that many, many machines they can surpass now doctors in some specific tasks, do you think that uh, ministers of here, they have to come out in public and admit that and make it this very visible to the public? So there's a, there's a fear that, that, there, that there needs to be a public discussion that machines have started yes. uh, surpassing uh, humans. So maybe, maybe let me just broaden the, broaden the question. So what is the general public perception and people management dimension of AI? Both, so let's say, let's start from within a company, right? So a company that is rolling out an AI program uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of in a fairly under the radar kind of way, uh, you know, and kind of the general anxiety uh, associated with this and all the misunderstood things associated with it. Can you talk a little bit about kind of internal within the enterprise and general public uh, uh, perception of AI and, and how that intersects with where the technology is? So I, I, I'll talk about the general public yeah. because it's, it's uh, yeah. easier in enterprise. You have many more things pulling at it. In public, you have the consumers. Look, the, the general problem that is out there is people say, the AIs are going to take all our jobs. Yes, they will. That's a great thing. Like because look at our developed societies, a lot of jobs that we have, not all of them, but a lot of jobs that we have are not meant to be done by humans. I mean, we even say that. We say if a company works well, it works like a well-oiled machine. Like well, what do we want? We want well-oiled machine. We want people to work like machines. So we should not be surprised if the machines take that over. And then in these highly developed societies, we have depressed people. Like why? Because they're forced to work like machines. I mean, the, po the whole point of AI is that we finally get our time back to do something that is more human, which is maybe think and create new things. So and think about, hold on, yeah. um, this, this is very important to finish this argument because then <laughs> the only, I mean, the, the fear that we have is there are no jobs left. Right? And then there's a problem. So I very much invite you to watch the news, fake or otherwise. <laughs> if you, or look outside the window, if you believe that we're doing everything that is necessary, you are right, and after introduction of AI, we're all gonna be in deep trouble. If you see like I see, that we are not doing a lot of things that are necessary and we need to do way more things, but we are busy keeping our hamster wheel turning, um, then AI should be a good thing, shouldn't it? And by the way, if you do think that we're doing everything that's necessary, I want the drugs you're taking. <laughs> so, so, so no question, I think, uh, you know, if, if uh, anyone said that the right kind of job for people is to be a peasant out in the fields, toiling from morning to evening and having harvesters that automatically do it instead of people. I mean, you can kind of clearly see that's not a job that people have been flocking towards. It's just what they kind of had, right? But 200 years ago, that was that's like... Right. <laughs> exactly. So that, so that shift happened. So the, I guess the question then is, uh, hidden, uh, the hidden kind of dangers that lurk one level down. It's not so much about job displacement, but for instance, uh, I think there have been a bunch of episodes in the stock trading, automatic stock trading world of algorithms that kind of, uh, kind of coincided with each other and caused massive 
disruptions in the stock market, not because, uh, because they kind of functioned as designed, right? Uh, and so the question then is, uh, as we have more algorithmic control of life, let's talk a bit about kind of, do you feel there should be kind of a governance structure around this social policy around the pervasiveness of AI, not so much from a job displacement perspective, but from a, from a kind of injection of alg algorithmic control into life so perspective. Please, please allow me the joke, right? Is um, the stock market screws up every day and because people work as designed. Um, right, but um, to get serious on that, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I just had to um, to get serious on that one. It, it is um, our expectation often is that machines work better than humans. Um, in the end, machines learn from us, whether they observe us, whether we speak to them directly, um, whether we program them. But normally, they learn from us. So what you get as a machine is a deep look in the mirror of what is happening in society. If you get a, a chatbot that is talking Nazi, um, that means that all the other people were way too busy to teach a new, I don't, wouldn't call that life form, right? But a new thing, something worth knowing, and you only had idiots talk to it. Hmm. Like that's, that's the problem. I mean, the problem is that if we want these machines to do stuff that we want them to do, we will have to interact with them. If we don't do that, if, if we believe that you can create regulations so that only good people interact with AIs, how is that supposed to happen? It's our job, like we're educating them. So, so, I, so part of your thesis, I mean, and, and I kind of underlying all of this is that the opportunity for companies as they introduce AI into their enterprises is to turn their workforce into the uber content managers and teachers of these systems and take that experience and expertise that you were talking about and redeploy it as the controllers of this new uh, environment where the less efficient work is being done by exactly algorithms. i mean this has happened before i think currently we have we have this big fear in society right you can see this and i think it's mainly because we're we're disallowing ourselves to talk about the future mm -hmm. like let's have a conversation about the future and there i'd say that the gentleman up there who, who asked the question is totally right we have to have a conversation about this if we're not having a conversation about it people will be afraid of the future and then they'll ch vote for someone who's trying to sell them the past yeah so one there and then and then we'll come down here to you so question back there hi um Firstly, thank you so much for an amazing talk. Um, the question, I've got lots of questions, but I've got to think of one that I really want to know. Um, for a startup, for example, what sort of language would you um, recommend? And second, what are your thoughts on Watson? Sorry, what sort of language, programming language, yeah, to, in order to build AI? Yeah, just uh, for a startup. Uh, a programming language to build AI? Uh, so we use as, as the language to build the engine, we use Elixir. As the, as the language to build frontends, we use Java, or yeah, Java mainly. Uh, as the language to do a lot of data science, we use Python. I think that, that the key is, as compared to many IT people kind of learn that there's only one language, you should use a language that kind of fits what you're trying to do. Um, and if you need highly parallel processing, stuff like the Erlang VLM will help you. And if you need to do a quick compile run test, kind of hit the button and it, something happens, you should use Python. But um, 
look, I have this ongoing competition with people in my company when they come in and they say like, I'm an artist in this and that programming language. I have an ongoing bet with them. I say like, okay, you're an artist. I don't believe that programming has anything to do with art. The art happens before you create the code and it happens inside your head. So let's do a bet. The bet is you, let's pick an algorithm from Sedgwick or Knut, any algorithm, and you implement it in your artsy language and you pick a language for me that I have not done yet. And I bet you within two weeks my algorithm is going to be more efficient than yours. And I've never lost. Knut, I haven't heard Knut since my master's in computer science 25 years ago. A computing algorithm. So is, is the, uh, so kind of from a technique. Sorry, there, yeah, there was ahead. a second question. Oh, the, we, yeah, second part. We should answer um, Watson. That's very difficult, right? Um, while staying polite. Um, Watson was absolutely fantastic when it did Jeopardy. And I believe it's one of the most over-marketed things ever out there. Um, the Watson technology is sound. It just can't do 10% of the things that the ads make you think it does. Is that an okay answer? <laughs> so, question down here. Uh, once you go and, yeah, you know, you can project a little bit. So, when it comes to how you always your how much legal responsibility do you take for the processes that you're taking over? We have to take the responsibility for the part the AI does. We can't take the responsibility for the experience that people feed into the AI, but for the proper functioning, we have to take it. I, I, that's the only way to, to deal with it. If you are not willing to take that responsibility, you should not be able to deploy that. But on the other hand, right, if people teach it something, you cannot be responsible for people put its garbage in, garbage out. Um, a question from the overflow room uh, that uh, has come in, uh, which I'll paraphrase a little bit, uh, has to do with the political environment and politicians and kind of their view of uh, AI and how much do they understand uh, about AI in terms of uh, policy, etc. And I know over lunch you were reflecting on some recent conversations you were having, so maybe you want to talk a bit about Policy, government, role. Uh, I, I think one of the biggest dangers that we're facing, um, especially in Europe, and the Chinese are doing a much better job, is we try to regulate things that we don't know anything about because we make an anticipation. Personally, I think regulation should happen once we know the problem. Currently, we don't know the problem. So we need to watch what's happening and then regulate it. If we regulate it before it ever happened, the oldest law of physics will apply, the stuff that was there before entropy and randomness ever happened, which is the law of unintended consequences, right? which is what happened with the European data protection thingy, which was meant to block American companies from, from gathering, tracking user data, which is kind of unfair to do, right? but we felt that it was necessary. And now, with the way they've implemented it, only these companies can track users. So I, I very strongly believe is regulate once you know the problem. So, but are there things that they should be doing policy-wise to promote it? So from, from my point of... Or take a forward-looking stance on it? So I have, I have um, had various conversations in, in German politics and European politics, and I have three things that should happen. 
is number one thing is we need to find a way to retire industries. Um, meaning that we basically have to tell people if you're an industry that is going to re entirely be, re be replaced, we're going to pay for you until you retire. And your job is going to be teaching whatever you know about your industry to the AI. Because one of the worst things that we ever do as people is we forget stuff. A very prominent example in Europe is that the Romans knew everything about sewer systems. And then in the Dark Ages, we forgot everything about sewer systems. And then we had the plague, which killed like 50% of the population just because we forgot about sewers. Um, very sad. So we should, number one, find a way to retire industries, pay people, and have what they know be taught to an AI. Also, that creates tradable assets for either trade unions or the government who's paying. Number two. We need a broad education. If a future job means to be creative and we want people to think outside the box, we need less specialization and more broad. So we need math and philosophy, not just math and math. And I'm saying this as an avid math fan and I take math books on holidays and so on, but the other end is important as well. How are you supposed to find an outlandish solution to a problem if you're, you've been taught to do this? Like, so education needs to broaden up. And I think this is what you guys are doing here right now is very important. And number three is exactly the regulation point. Let's regulate stuff after we know the problem, not preemptively. OK. Uh, question here. Hi, yeah. Going back to a, an earlier question about whether AI can, can mimic, if we want it to, the, the human brain and how that works. And given that the complexity of the human brain isn't just from the number of nodes and the nature of the connections, but also about the the analog type messaging system within that. Is there ways that the AI industry is trying to mimic that analog type communication mechanism? There are all kinds of experiments out there. Um, it just don't work at all. Oh. <laughs> but there's very, I mean, if I, the AI industry needs more talent, more people to try that kind of stuff out. Right? Is, there is tons of, just none of that really works as a, a rolloutable kind of system. Coming back to the government and focusing more on optimizing processes, do you see anything that current governments might be doing now that could be optimized with artificial intelligence? In terms of government processes? <laughs> Most of it. I mean, bureaucracy, bureaucracy is the mother of process, and I'm saying this as a German. It's, it's, <laughs> right? it, definitely, we could apply, start applying AI there. It would be very efficient. So how about we do the whole car registration? That should be something that can be done very quickly. Actually, we had a prototype of that running in Kansas before Mr. Trump appeared. Um, right, you, you don't have to wait. So I, so I think we have time for a couple of more questions. Uh, so let's go. The microphone is there. And so in the meantime, you, we'll get the microphone down to you. Hi. I would like to come back to your uh, view on job displacement. Uh, I really admire your optimism on the issue, but uh, I think statistically speaking, the most depressed group isn't the ones that have a low paying or shitty job. It's the group that doesn't have a job. And um, the AI is set to replace, uh, it's set to create one job for every 20 job that it destroys. Don't you think it's a bit irresponsible for the tech industry to uh, give that responsibility of uh, creating social change so, to the government. So, A, in 
in the world where we could deploy AI today, the jobless rate is very low, like extremely low. If you look at countries where we are, even though we don't believe it, in kind of a boom cycle. The world has been as good as it has not been before, despite the news, um, and the jobless rate is extremely low. A lot of people that don't have jobs today are chronically unemployable for various reasons. And we need to take, I believe, we need to take care of them f socially. Um, but that's a different story. So our problem here in the developed world is very different. Like we don't have enough people. Like we're importing talent from left, right and center or trying to do that. Um, so I do believe that um, the most depressed group is not just the ones that, that don't have jobs. Um, the most depressed group is that have jobs. A lot of people like, look where all this work-life balance stuff comes from. That means you have to live your life only in your life and your work is not part of your life. It means can't make you happy and stuff like this. So I believe there's something. Where do you have the number from that AI will only create one job for 20 it kills? Where does that come from? Where? And, and what, how was that created? Because like statistically speaking, the only thing we have to build on is the past, right? So statistically speaking, there has, job creation has held pace with human uh, multiplication so far. Um, maybe that will change, but there's no evidence at all to, to, to show this in the numbers. Um, and the second thing is, if we don't believe that there are huge tasks to be done, I mean, just look what we needed to do in terms of, of energy or climate management or whatever. All the, the, the work that we are not doing, if there's not a gazillion jobs saved in that that we should be doing and uh -huh, currently don't 500 have... Dollars. <laughs> yeah. 500 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we can so, continue this conversation. Well, and so, and, and, and something you said uh, before, before this session started, just to kind of maybe add some uh, color to this, is uh, I think the comment you made before this presentation was AI is inevitable, so it's not about whether you introduce it or not. The question then is how you respond to it, right? It, it, there's an inevitability to the, to the injection. So the question is then more about policy and how do you manage the disruption and how do you not have uh, a revolt, uh, you know, and, and how do you do kind of skills retraining and so on? Am I, am I... So when I'm talking to the politicians at home, I'm, I'm more drastic. I'm telling them that, look, either you embrace it or you're just not going to be part of the G20 in 10 years. So I'm going to take one more question, but before I do that, before I do that, I just want to remind everybody that the next uh, Tuesday, the, uh, the 13th of February, is another amazing uh, uh, speaker, William Tunstall Pedo, who uh, is again going to be talking about artificial intelligence and his company got acquired by Amazon and powers Alexa, right? So make sure you come back next Tuesday uh, for uh, next Tuesday's session. And with that, we will take the final question of the evening. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for, for a great talk this evening. Um, I just wanted to inquire more about um, biocomputing, and not biocomputing with uh, DNA, but with biochemical pathways, because um, using protein concentrations um, as code instead of like a binary system, uh, that would be the ultimate uh, analog-based system, I think. What, what, do you see that as a way of the future? I'm not sure um, because um, 
it has many advantages because it has much higher parallel ability. Um, it is much more robust. It's very anti-fragile and all these kind of things. I, I really like the concept. Um, currently, our whole algorithmic system is built for a lot of speed and a lot of inefficiency. So we would probably have to build a lot of our, rebuild a lot of our algorithmic knowledge. The basic problem is that in, in computer science and engineering, we're trying to produce point solutions, right? We're doing something and we're hitting the solution. As we're in a biocompute system, we would have to create an equilibrium between two systems that are both governed by differential equations. So could this be a very promising future technology? Yes, but we would have to rethink a lot of what we know about computer science to do that. Thank you so much. And with that, uh, I just want to say a huge thank you to Chris Moose. I, I think uh, we all agree. I mean, it's not just the content of the presentation, but the person as well, in terms of kind of having that level of depth of ex expertise and experience across uh, 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 a long span of time, having really thought about this technology and its implications. It's really quite remarkable uh, to have Chris Moose here uh, speaking to all of us. And with that, uh, we'll bring this to an end. A big round of applause, please. Thank you very much. Was it was a pleasure. So, uh, a huge thank you to you, uh, Chris, as uh, Chandra Andrews said, but I also would like to thank uh, Jens for, again for making this possible and Chandra for his superb uh, chairing of the session. So, a huge thank you to both Jens and Chandra. And